In the book of Hebrews, Paul teaches the superiority of Christ over any other means of access to God, including angels, the Hebrew scriptures, and even the temple itself. The reason for all this is because Christ is the truth to which everything else points, or as Paul puts it, our eternal high priest. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me for Gospel Doctrine. Today's lesson is on Hebrews chapters 1 through 6, Jesus Christ, the author of eternal salvation. As always, contact the show by emailing me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And your five-star reviews on Facebook and iTunes are always very much appreciated as they help us to reach more people and bring our podcast to more listeners. Today's questions come from Anne-Marie, and I'm assuming she's referring to fellow students in some sort of institute or Sunday school class. She asks, Some of my fellow students were discussing the movie 17 Miracles. One of the miracles was the story of a mother and her son that got left behind when the pioneers were crossing the plains. They were starving and prayed for help, and a pie appeared out of nowhere. The students were talking about what a ridiculous story this is, and how this type of miracle breaks all of God's laws and that this sort of thing could never happen. I do believe that God works within his laws, but I don't see how a God that created a universe from elements could not do something as simple as create a pie. My peers argue that for God to do such a thing would have dire consequences because it would break the laws of physics, and there would be a disastrous rippling effect. They believe he could kill an animal for them to eat, or perhaps even drop manna from heaven. They believe he would guide the mother to plants that could be eaten, or provide a way for them not to feel hungry, but they think it would be most ridiculous for God to have a pie appear. Uh, I love this question. She has another question we'll get to in a minute, but I love this question because it brings up a lot of uh, our modern-day sensibilities and contrasts them directly with what's going on in the scriptures. And I'll give you a perfect example, which and and I I guarantee your students have not connected this to what their, their current doubt is, and that is the appearance of the Liahona to Lehi's family. So again, we have something that appears seemingly out of nowhere. We don't know the origin of the Liahona. All we know is that one day Lehi walked out of his tent, and here's this wonderful compass that not only points directions, we don't know all of the functions that the Liahona had. It had a couple of pointers in there. One of them was where they should go in the wilderness, but we don't know what the other one was for. And occasionally messages, written messages, it seems, would appear. So the Liahona has a lot of interesting ways that it can work, and it appeared out of nowhere. Now, if uh, a pie can't appear on the road for two hungry people, then certainly a strange compass that gives messages and directions of where somebody should go, which is not a scientific thing that we know how to build, uh, can't appear, right? A, A pie is much less complicated than that. And yet, I don't think any of your students are complaining about the Book of Mormon account of the Liahona appearing. So modern readers often have this sort of qualm with scriptural accounts or with uh, the accounts of the faithful in the latter days as well. Things like Noah's Ark, right? The mathematicians of today have done the math on how big Noah's Ark would have had to been and uh, given the description that we have in the book of Genesis and then how many animals could actually fit. And then they figured out how much food you would have to bring to be on the ark that long, and it just the math just doesn't work out. 
And because of all of these things, then they've uh, there have been many who have concluded, well, the story of Noah and his ark is not true, or it's a fable. And if there were as many Book of Mormon scholars as there are Bible scholars, I imagine you, you would have people similarly finding fault with the appearance of the Lehona for uh, among many examples in the Book of Mormon of, of fantastic events that occur in the Book of Mormon, you would have people finding similar fault and saying it breaks the laws of physics. The first thing I'll say about this is that James E. Talmadge addressed this question in the book, in his book, Jesus the Christ, when he talked about all of Christ's miracles, including healing, walking on water, he said, obviously Christ is not going to break the laws of physics. However, he happens to understand a lot of the laws of physics that we currently have not discovered. And therefore, what seems miraculous to us is simply, is simply the application of a law of physics that, of which we are currently ignorant. Uh, so this idea that God is the ultimate scientist is not new, and it, the question is, how far can you choose to take it? Why would God choose, rather than uh, have, like they said, what, in, rather than have God choose to bring an animal within their range of their weapons so that they could kill and eat it, or find some plants that they could eat, why would he choose to have something as obviously man-made as a pie appear in the middle of the road where it could never be far from an oven where it would have had to be baked? Uh, that, to me, is a far more interesting question than can God create a pie? God can create a pie. There's no question about that. So the question is, why? Why would that be the particular miracle that was performed for them at that time? And... Uh, many times, perhaps, a miracle occurs by human agency, right? Maybe there was somebody who happened to have something that resembled a pie, close enough for this boy to describe it as such, and we just don't have all the details. But it could also be that God miraculously created a pie. Uh, maybe there was a workman in Jerusalem who knew how to make something like the Liahona, and God inspired him to leave it outside Lehi's tent one day, and then go back to Jerusalem, and we just don't have his story. Or maybe God miraculously created the Liahona. We don't have the account of that. So uh, Anne-Marie has another question, and I'm going to give the same answer to both. She says, uh, why, am I, why do I allow the people in the great and spacious building to make me feel ashamed? And uh, I think that's a wonderful question because all of us from time to time find ourselves in this position where there are those who doubt what we believe or doubt what they believe, and in order to make themselves feel better, want to make us feel worse. And so, I don't know why, but I felt today to ponder upon a certain conference talk, and it doesn't really have to do with the lesson from today, so I'm glad you asked this question, because it gives me an opportunity to mention it. And it's from April 2015 conference. It's by Elder Clayton, Elder Whitney Clayton. It's called Choose to Believe. And it's a wonderful story. Well, it's a terrible story, but it's a wonderful lesson from a terrible story about a girl who is in a plane crash with her family. She's the only survivor. She's a young girl, and she uh, loses her shoes, and she loses, and she breaks a bone, and she's far from help, and it's a cold night. She's all alone. And because there's a light in the distance, she's able to make her way across the, the difficult terrain from the crash site to civilization. And he talks about how she must have doubted. She must have had 
uh, plenty of other choices, but because she saw a light in the distance and made made for it, uh, and there have been times when she probably couldn't see that light, but she chose to keep going, eventually she reached help. She reached somebody who could call the medical assist, call for medical assistance and go and find the wreckage and see if there was anybody who could help her family. And she had to keep striving. Uh, and so Elder Clayton makes a, an analogy from this to our lives, that we have a light in the distance and we're finding ourselves quite often in difficult situations. Times when we could just as easily give up as not give up. And it's in those moments that we choose to believe. I think it's so, it's so common, it's probably universal, that all of us would desire to have the testimony of God come upon us so powerfully that we don't have to make that choice. In fact, all of us, I, I think from, uh, from time to time or one time or another, we ask God to reveal something to us that would violate our agency were God to do it. We want, we want a testimony that we could never question. We want God to help us with a decision that we need to make and make his will manifest to us in such a way that we can't mistake it and we would never dream of countermanding what we see as an order from God. What Elder Clayton is teaching is God will always stay short of that point where we're, we are compelled to follow him, even though it would make us happy, even though we would feel in that moment that God is with us, that there's no question about what's right to do. All of that would make life so easy. The, the only problem with that desire is that it's actually Satan's plan. It seems so counterintuitive to all of us because it's the very thing that we want from God is to show up in our lives the way that Satan promised to show up in our lives rather than the way that God has always described himself as showing up in our lives, someone who would inspire us and then give us a choice. And so my answer to your questions, Anne-Marie, is that we have a choice. We have a choice to believe. It's not always easy. It doesn't always make sense. There are questions that will never be resolved. And those questions are the most interesting ones because we can choose to struggle with them and to find answers and to compare those answers with the things that we already know and to continually learn. We'll learn, learn throughout our lives. And as we'll find out in today's lesson, Jesus Christ did the same. Thank you for that question. On to the first half of the book of Hebrews. Now, uh, there's an old joke about the book of Hebrews, and that's, uh, that's this. A young Bible scholar began his college studies, his, his postgraduate studies, and he asked a man who was at the end of a career dedicated to the book of Hebrews, and he said, what can you tell me having spent your entire career studying the book of Hebrews? What can you tell me about it that will be most profitable for me? And the old man thought a moment and he said, well, Paul's epistle to the Hebrews was neither written by Paul nor an epistle nor to the Hebrews. So that's the, that's the joke about Hebrews, and I'll explain that. Uh, first of all, the authorship is in question. Now, it's not true that, it's not necessarily true that it wasn't written by Paul. It's also not necessarily true it wasn't written to the Hebrews. And it's not necessarily true that it wasn't an epistle. So it would be more accurate to say, we don't know for sure that it was Paul. We don't know for sure that it was to the Hebrews. And it's unclear whether this was intended to be an epistle. Of those three questions, it seems least important whether this was an epistle or not. Um, it actually seems more like a free-form essay. So 
uh, getting back to the subject of authorship, uh, the the idea that Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews is supported by observations that many have made about stylistic differences between the way Hebrews is written and the other epistles of Paul are written. Now, to me, this seems like the weakest of the arguments against Paul, the idea that of Paul's authorship, because I myself am a writer, and I've written many different styles when for different purposes. If I were to write an informal email, then I would write in one style. But I've also written poetry, I've written novel-length narratives, I've written short stories, and if I were to take a transcript of my podcasts and write that down, that would be an, an entirely different style. So the same writer is capable of writing in many different styles suited to the purpose. And we have so many examples of that that it doesn't even, I'm not even sure it's really a profitable question. So some of the stylistic differences are quite substantive, but most of them boil down to it could still be Paul writing for a different purpose, or as we find just in the title of the book, to a different audience. However, some of the stylistic comparisons are actually worth considering. In his other epistles, Paul at the beginning said, Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles, to the Galatians, or to the Colossians, and he identified himself and he identified his audience right up front. Now, one reason Paul may not have done this is because he, he did consider himself the apostle to the Gentiles. An apostle means one who is sent. So Paul is sent to the Gentiles, and he may not think that he's worthy of identifying himself as the author if he's not writing to the Gentiles. Now, we we also the title of this epistle to the Hebrews is actually taken from the number of Old Testament quotations and ideas that run that pervade the text and the subtext of this entire book. So it's not actually labeled as being to the Hebrews, but it's to a people that are so familiar with the Old Testament, particularly the five books of the Torah and the Psalms, but also books like Samuel, Kings, Job, and even Maccabees, that it would, this would simply not make sense to be a book to any other audience. So was it written to the Hebrews? Almost certainly, and that's why it has its name. Was it written by Paul? Well, the arguments in favor are that we have a definitive date, and this is from Clement, Bishop of Rome in the first century. Uh, he, He wrote about the epistle to the Hebrews as being authoritative, and we have a firm date on his manuscript, which is earlier than 96 AD. So we know that for sure Hebrews was written before then. But the content would also suggest, uh, specifically Paul says that we should stop, as Christians, the Jews should stop worrying about physical sacrifices in the temple on the Temple Mount because Christ sacrificed once and forever. So by drawing this contrast between temple sacrifice and the sacrifice of Christ, he is saying we don't need to continually offer sacrifices and we don't need Aaronic or Levitical high priests in order to mediate for us because Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Now, it would seem sort of futile for a teacher to make this contrast after the temple has been destroyed, and that happened in 70 AD. Now, if Paul did write this epistle, most most people would date it around 62 to 63 during his first imprisonment in Rome. And so it seems very reasonable that this was written right in the time frame when it would have need to need to have been written. Uh, 
uh, if Paul wrote it. And it seems to agree with many of the ideas of Paul. And therefore, uh, there are times when the voice is we rather than I. And so in line with Paul's many of Paul's epistles, he could have used a scribe or he could have used a collaborator. Finally, one of the arguments is that Paul, the, the Greek in the book of Hebrews is better than Paul's Greek elsewhere. And that is actually quite a strong argument because you don't suddenly uh, get better at writing Greek just because you're writing to a different audience. Now, this could be because Paul used a different scribe, such as Luke, for example, who we know from other epistles was present with him on some of his, at least probably on his final uh, imprisonment in Rome and possibly on his first imprisonment. And that's just one example. It, it also may be true that this this uh, treatise or this essay was originally written in Hebrew and then later translated by Luke for the Hellenistic Jews who were converting to Christianity and to the Gentiles as a secondary audience. And if that's the case, translation would entirely explain the difference in the Greek. So I thought I'd make you aware of some of those questions. And uh, if, it's, if it's any help, uh, Joseph Smith referred to Paul. He didn't say that he was receiving revelation on this subject, but he did refer many times to Paul as the author of the book of Hebrews. So we know the date it was written. We know that the perspective from which it was written is somebody of Paul's stature within the church, within the Christian communities that were being established all over the Mediterranean. And we know also that the earliest people, the earliest accounts we have of people talking about the book of Hebrews attributed it to Paul. And therefore, that's good enough reason for us to assume that Paul was involved in its production, perhaps as a collaborator, perhaps as the writer. And that's good enough for me. So that's all we'll say about that. But I think uh, I, would, I would have felt incomplete if I didn't leave you informed on that question. Now, as to structure, the, the main point of the book of Hebrews is for Paul to draw a, con- a contrast between what we would today call old and new. And the, the Jews obviously didn't think of their scriptures as the Old Testament. They saw what we would call, what the Jews today would call the Hebrew scriptures. They saw those as just the scriptures. But we have this interesting passage in the book of Jeremiah that I've referred to many times. I, I think it's a, a reference that it would behoove you to commit to memory. And that's Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And I'll just paraphrase, but in brief, what Jeremiah says there is, there will come a day when I will make a new covenant. And he's referring to the covenant of Moses. He says, it's not going to be like the covenant that God made with our ancestors, with Moses at at Mount Sinai, which covenant they broke. But it's going to be a covenant they're going to keep. I'm going to take my law, and rather than writing it on tablets of stone, I'm going to write it on the hearts of the people. And everyone will know me. And so the, different, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in that, in that description by Jeremiah was that the people would actually keep the New Covenant. And then he gives the reason at the very end. He says, for I will forgive them their sins. And so God was the one who was going to make this possible by performing a great miracle of reconciliation between himself and his people. It wasn't because the people would be better. It would be because God would, in effect, change the hearts of people so that they would know him and that they would have the law inside them rather than outside them. And 
I have never seen another candidate for this fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah other than Jesus Christ. So I've never seen a Jew say, you know, Jeremiah was talking about this historical event when he talked about a new covenant that he would establish with his people. So obviously Jews believe in the book of Jeremiah. They believe Jeremiah was a prophet. He's one of the major prophets. And if there is a common belief among Jews of what he was talking about in chapter 31, then I'm unaware of it. So uh, to me, it seems like Jesus Christ fulfilled this prophecy in every possible respect. And when we look at the modern New Testament, which obviously did not exist for the people living at that time, when we look at the scriptures we have, we can make a clear comparison between a, a New Testament philosophy and an Old Testament philosophy. Now, a big part of that is due to Paul's theology. Paul is the one who established Christian theology and came up with a lot of the ideas which would later become the basis for this new religion. And half of them probably are here uh, in the book of Hebrews. And so the point that Paul is making throughout this book is let's, let's compare with what has gone on before with what we're seeing now. And he does that in a number of ways. And I'm going to take it chapter by chapter, and we'll see how Paul compares the Old to the New. And he wouldn't have thought of it as Old Testament versus New Testament. In other words, he didn't care about what scriptures represented the ideas, but he definitely would have thought of it as Old Covenant versus New Covenant. So that that other meaning of Testament, right? We think of Old Testament just being a, a book, but Testament actually means covenant. And Paul definitely does draw that distinction. It's very clear. It's a line, almost like a very clear line in the sand that on this side is Moses and are all the things that our fathers believed in. And on this side is Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. Some of those things are carried over. For example, he describes many times Jesus as being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is a phenomenon very much alive in Old Testament times and carried over and perfected in Christ. And so it's not that nobody in the Old Testament of Paul lived according to the better way that Christ showed us, but that it was not the prevailing view. So let's begin with chapter 1. And this chapter is primarily a contrast between Jesus and the angels. And I want to say a word about angels. So angels appear in several places in the Old Testament. You might recall in chapter 6 of Isaiah, when Isaiah has his throne theophany, and he's called into the temple, and he sees seraphim, and they have six wings. And uh, one with two wings are for flying, two wings are for covering the face, two wings are for covering the feet. Interestingly enough, angels... In, in mainstream Christian theology, in mainstream Judaism, are not the same thing as seraphim. So these seraphim are creatures of God, and they look strange, and they're not people. They're not uh, spirits. They don't have the same view that uh, people be, existed before coming to earth, and the angels might be some of these more valiant spirits. The idea that they had was that God created a different race or a different type of being to do one job, and then he created people to come to earth and live here, and he created angels to be messengers that look perhaps like people. And all of these classes of beings are separate. So the, the And this may have been Paul's idea, and it may not have been, but it does seem clear to most modern scholars that New Old Testament people, uh, Israelites, would have believed that angels were separate 
from people. They weren't just in a different stage of their eternal progression. And this idea finds its expression in the phrase sons of God, which appears several times in the Old Testament. So uh, we, as Latter-day Saints, think of the seraphim in Isaiah's vision as angels, but a Jew from that time period would not have. But when you hear, when you read about the the experience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for example, being thrust into the fiery furnace. And what does Nebuchadnezzar see? He says, I saw a fourth person who was, who was like unto the Son of God. What that means was not that he saw Jesus. Obviously, he didn't have a teaching about what Jesus would look like. What he saw was somebody who looked like an angel. A Son of God was somebody who was a divine being. And it is in specific contrast to a Son of Man. So speaking of a son of God means someone from up above, and a son of man is somebody who looks like a mortal man. And that's why later in the book of Daniel, uh, there is someone who looks like a mortal man. This is in contrast to the son of God that appears elsewhere in the book. So the point of that name was that there was nothing special about this individual. The son of man comes and he looks, he's a son of Adam. He's just a person. At the beginning of the book of Job, there's a council in heaven that is described where uh, God is with the sons of God, and they're surrounding his throne, and then Satan, or the uh, accuser, or the adversary, comes in and says, let's torment Job and test him and see exactly what he's capable of. He only believes in you because you blessed him so much. So God, and that's not the point I want to make here, but the point is that God is surrounded by this other class of beings, these sons of God, these greater they, they have greater glory, and they have greater power, and they have greater mobility, and they have direct access to the throne of God. And then at the end of the book of Job, uh, in the chapter 38, God asked Job the question, where were you when I formed the plan to create the, worth it, the world, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And so, again, saying, I, before the world existed, I was with my angels in heaven, and we created a plan, and and so the, the sons of God are also the Nepha, uh, often equated with the Nephilim, or this race of giants that existed before the flood. So they're a, greater, they're a, a race or a class of being that is greater than humanity. And what uh, Paul, Paul, so Paul does something interesting here, and he says that he contrasts Jesus with the angels. So Jesus is a son of God but not in the same way that an angel is a son of God. Jesus is not a heavenly being. So obviously, Paul is describing that Jesus made himself lower than these angels, and that was his condescension. And when, by doing this, what Jesus did was allow people, all of us, the race of humanity, to be raised above the angels. So uh, chapter 1 is where Paul says, To which of the angels did God say, You're my son? Here's And he quotes from numerous places, and I could, I could track down, or I could uh, enumerate, I suppose I should say, all of these different quotes for, uh, from the Old Testament. But they're numerous quotes from Psalms and also from Samuel, and basically Paul is saying, here's what God said to the angels, here's what God said to Jesus. To the angels he said, this, you know, you're in my presence, but to, the, but to Jesus he said, I'm going to make all of your enemies your footstool. I'm going to place you above everything else. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Things of this nature. And you contrast that with the promises that God made to the angels. And he's, Paul is taking the utterances, uh, the perhaps even dramatizations of what is said in the book of Psalms to the angels as if it were from the voice of God and saying, 
these pronouncements that God has made to angels or the sons of God, in quotes, uh, are much less dramatic than the promises that he has made to his own son, to the Messiah himself. Now, this is in line with the idea, uh, we're, we're going to find it introduced in chapter 2, that, and I want to I reiterate something that I've said many times, which is the idea that Christ is the Logos of God. Now, if you remember in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We've talked about the, the idea of Logos is more than just the meaning of the word Word. A logos, the logos of God was a very well understood Hebrew theological concept in which there was a, a visible or tangible or perceivable aspect of God to humans. And the closest way I could probably analogize it would be imagine if you could draw on a piece of paper a cartoon that could come to life. So you draw a little village and you draw people that can walk around. But the only, their entire world exists on this piece of paper, and perhaps it's a large piece of paper, but they can't look out of the piece of paper, and they can't look below the piece of paper. All they can look is up, down, left, right, or some combination of those directions. In other, word, in other words, their world is two-dimensional. Now imagine that you thrust your hand into this piece of paper, and you could interact with the cartoons that you drew. They would not experience your entire being. They, even if you lie, lie down on this piece of paper, if you lay down this piece of paper and had the cross-section of your body intersected by the paper was your entire outline, they would still see only that two-dimensional cross-section. They would not see your full three-dimensional being. Now, this is a very modern way of phrasing this analogy, but I think it holds true. That, that cross-section, you know, if you put your finger on the paper and that's the only part of your body that is intersecting the paper, then they would only experience this tiny part of you. And that's what they would think is the entirety of you. And in your mind, you would be thinking, these poor little drawings, they cannot perceive that I am so much greater than this little tiny dime-sized circular cross-section that they have in front of them. I am much greater than they can even imagine because there's a whole other direction in which they have they don't even know exists that if they could look, they would see me there. And I can always be next to them and never perceived by them. This is the idea of a logos. Even though I don't think there's a single person back in the ancient world that would have explained it this way, I think it does capture the idea of the logos. So Christ, in Paul's mind, is the Logos of God. And the way that he phrased that in the beginning of chapter 1 is to say that he is in God's express image. Now, express image is a, uh, a Greek word that you'll recognize. The word is character. And uh, obviously, that is the etymology of our modern word, character, but it, it means a tool for engraving. So a character is an imprint. It is a sculpture. It is a a faithful image, a faithful reconstruction of what God is. So to say that Jesus is in the express image is to basically say that Jesus is as close as we can get to what we would look at if we were to look at God. So what Paul's saying is not that Jesus is the engraving tool of God, but is Jesus is the imprint of God. That's the that's the origin of the word, but not the meaning of the word in this particular application. 
What it means is Jesus is the imprint of God. He's God's evidence of, of God's passing, much like uh, the rays of sun that reach, your, that reach your eyes are all you experience of the sun. You don't actually touch the sun in the sky, but the rays of the sun are the sun to you. And that is, in much the same way, that's what Jesus is to God. The, another way of saying this would be that there is no God other than Jesus. There, it's not that Jesus is meant to be considered as a separate being from God. And uh, that is true. The, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, was Jehovah. And that, as we know, is who Jesus was prior to being born on the earth. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul asks the question, Aren't all angels ministering spirits, ministering spirits to those who will receive salvation? So he asks an interesting question. Even though the sons of God are so much above humanity, isn't their purpose to serve those who are striving to be like God, or to put more realistically, striving to be like Christ? And because Christ was willing, in spite of his great position, to make himself a little bit lower than angels for a time, and then obviously be exalted above angels for all time, he will bring us to where he is, and eventually, even lowly man, look around and see that those who believe will be raised above where the angels are. So that's where the idea of condescension comes in, and he continues that in chapter 2. Now, the, the point of the contrast is this. Because the witness of Jesus is, is more powerful than that of angels, then the importance to obey the message of Jesus is even greater than the importance would have been to an Old Testament time Jew to follow that message. So how can we, the, those who have heard the message of Jesus, how can we ignore that message, being that it's so much easier to understand, it's so much more evident, and the rewards are so much greater than those people who did not obey the the messages of the angels in the Old Testament. And I'll read to you from the end of chapter 2. This is from the New International Version. For surely, this is verse 16, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So this ties together two concepts. One is the, the condescension of Jesus, and the second is the, the temple with Christ. The atone, now, the atonement is the key word here, because atonement had a meaning before Paul found it and applied it to Jesus, by the way. Jews t- still today, every year, sac- uh, celebrate the Day of Atonement, and that is the Day of Reconciliation between God and humanity. And in ancient times, as, as we've mentioned many times, the, the high priest of Aaron would sacrifice an unblemished lamb on the altar and then carry the blood of the lamb from the altar out in front of the temple into the temple, through the first veil, into the holy place, which was decorated like the Garden of Eden, across that holy place and it, through the second veil, which had two parts to it, into the Holy of Holies, where sat the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had this uh, imaginary 
place above the wings of the two cherubim which were stress, stretching towards each other and in this and then this in the air above these two uh, representations of angels was what was called the mercy seat which was theoretically the the dwelling place of god when god was in the temple that's where he was and that's where isaiah experienced him among other prophets and so the the high priest would carry this blood of the lamb into the Holy of Holies and then sprinkle it towards the Ark of the Covenant. And by bringing the blood of the Lamb into the presence of God, then the people of the Jews and the high priest himself, they had their sins forgiven and they were reconciled to God. And this was called atonement. By, by giving that name to the sacrifice of Christ, what Paul was doing, he was doing something very conscious, which was saying, there was an attempt that it wasn't the blood of the lamb that actually forgave sins. There was no power within the lamb itself. The lamb was a symbol. The lamb was a method of teaching the Jews that they needed to be reconciled to God. And hopefully if they were humble enough, they would see that the substance of what was going on was elsewhere. It, it wasn't the temple itself. And obviously this wasn't lost on the Jews. The fact that they don't connect it to Christ doesn't mean they don't understand the need for God's grace. They recognize that if they obey the, the law of Moses and if they obey their temple ordinances, that God, it's God's grace, it's God's undeserved forgiveness that actually reconciles them to God. But they, they're missing, what Paul is saying is they're missing the reason why God can do that and, and exactly how he does it and the, the means by which God is able to do that is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he begins calling the atonement. And that is where we get our word. That is why we have the same word as the Day of Atonement. It's because Christ's sacrifice is so similar, and, and consciously, deliberately so, to the sacrifice of this lamb, this unblemished lamb, that it's obviously the truth to which all of those sacrifices were pointing. And incidentally, there was only one person who could do that, work. It was, it was the one high priest, and he would do it one day a year. It was a very great honor. It was uh, an express privilege. And, and Jesus Christ was not of the lineage that would have allowed him that privilege. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus is a different kind of high priest than you've ever experienced before. He doesn't go into the earthly temple. And so just like there's a comparison between the Old and the New Testament, the, the covenant that worked death, in the people of Moses, and the covenant that works life in the followers of Jesus Christ. Just as there's that difference, there's also a difference in the temple in which Jesus is the high priest and in which the Israelites were the high priest. There's a physical temple on the earth, and you could think of it as a literal overlapping of heaven and earth. But there's also a temple that, even though it's sort of figurative, even though um, it and, and we're going to get into a little strange concept here, but I'll explain it a couple of times, and hopefully eventually it'll become clear. Even though this heavenly temple is figurative, it's actually the truth under which the earthly temple was created. So let me explain that in a different way. There is a journey that all of us have to travel that Jesus Christ pioneered. Jesus Christ broke the way through so that we... He, he trailblazed this path for us to travel back to God. And this is a type of temple, but really the word for it is simply the plan of salvation. And Jesus, or the, or the atonement, if you will, 
Jesus traveled this road, and he knew that he, he always knew that he would. It was planned from the beginning of time. And so because God knew exactly what form man's salvation would take, he created a tabernacle to represent it. Now, this tabernacle was always a symbol. It was a concrete symbol of something that to man would only be abstract. However, the way that, because of the way the scriptures came out in the process of time, the Hebrews experienced the, the symbol first and the reality second. They experienced the tabernacle and the scriptures describing the tabernacle first, and then they learned about Jesus Christ and his atonement second. And so because the underlying reality, Jesus' actual journey, spiritual journey, to bring us closer to the Father, was experienced by them second, then it feels to them like Jesus is like the temple. However, what Paul is saying is Jesus... What Paul is saying is Jesus is actually the underlying reality and always has been. The temple is what is put on top. So even though the temple is real, it's a building, it's not a symbol, the, the design of the building is simply a reflection of, a, of an abstract concept. And so that's why it's a little hard to explain because the building is real and yet it's an abstraction of something that is merely spiritual. So I hope that's clear. That Paul is saying, we have been taught by this object lesson for all of our history. And now finally, finally, we get to learn what the meaning of that was. Or at least to some extent we get to learn. More of it will become clear as time goes on. But we're learning that the high priest, the purpose of the high priest, is to carry all of us, figuratively, back into the presence of God. From our celestial existence through a terrestrial state and then back into a celestial state where we can be forever united with God through the blood of the Lamb. Paul is communicating all of these things without saying them because they're so well understood. Now, uh, again, I, I wish I had time, and I, I just don't think it would be worth the time to mention every single Old Testament reference in the book of Hebrews, but it is probably every third or fourth verse there is a different reference to the Old Testament. And uh, so one of the things that you can do, and I highly recommend this, is to, on BibleHub.com, read the book of Hebrews in the New International Version. That's probably the most widely studied modern translation of the New Testament. The reason you would want to do it in that translation is not because it's more valid than any other translation, but because... The footnotes on the uh, on BibleHub.com are best in that translation. And then if you read the chapter and then you scroll to the bottom, you can see every single reference to the Old Testament and know exactly. And then follow those references and read those scriptures. I recommend it because each of those scriptures has a context that Paul is incorporating. So um, the, the way the context that exists in the Old Testament, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce a new term right now, and that's intertext. So the context of Hebrews is one thing, and the context of those references that Paul makes, uh, a, a particular scripture in the book of Psalms, for example, uh, is another thing. When we're talking about Hebrews, those other contexts are actually called, what are, what is called intertext, something that is referred, it is incorporated by reference. So if I were to say to you, we had an agreement that 
you would perform some work for me and I would pay you a certain amount of money. And we made that agreement. We put it in a contract on November the 3rd. Then I would be incorporating that agreement into our conversation by reference. I don't have to say the entire, I don't have to read the entire contract because we both have read it. We both know what's in it. And I am, by simply referring to the contract, I'm bringing all of the text of that contract into the current conversation. And that is what is called intertext. And there's so much intertext going on in what Paul is saying. Now, intertext is one way of including ideas. Another way is by subtext. And that is, instead of quoting directly uh, a passage from the Old Testament, Paul will refer to ideas that only exist in a few or maybe even one well-known place. And if you're familiar enough with that idea, and if you're familiar enough with the Hebrew Scriptures, you'll recognize it. But it's just an idea. It's not actually talking about Moses, for example. And therefore, it's subtext. It's understood, but it's not directly incorporated by a reference. So intertext, subtext, and then we have the actual context of what we're reading, which is Paul talking about the doctrine of condescension, for example, without reference to any other scripture. And those are the, those are the three ways in which new ideas can be brought in. So we have the actual text we're reading, and then we have the, all of these extra textual measures that Paul can use to bring in additional ideas. And by far the most common in the book of Hebrews, the most common intertext is the book of Psalms. Jesus Christ described himself as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This was an explicit reference to the 110th Psalm. And Paul actually uses that reference on a, a few different occasions. But uh, that's, that's far from the only reference to Psalms throughout the book of Hebrews. Now in chapter 3, the, this contrast between old and new continues. And now what Paul is contrasting is Jesus and Moses. So the point is, Jesus was the servant as, as, I'm sorry, Moses was the servant as Jesus is the son. So if there's a powerful household, then Moses was faithful, but his place was different. He was the servant. Jesus is also faithful, but his place is much greater. And what Paul says is, we're all of us, we're part of this house of God, meaning we are, of the descent, we are descendants of God. We might not be as high as Jesus is. We may, it may be that we're else, placed elsewhere in the family, but eventually we all of us have the blessings of heirs and not of servants. So what Paul's saying is through Jesus, we all have access to all the blessings of God. And Moses, what he was doing was providing some sort of lesser experience. The warning at the end of chapter 3 is that if the penalties for not listening to Moses were bad, which was that they didn't get to enter into the promised land, then think how bad the, the penalties for not listening to Christ will be. Because A, it's so much easier to hear his voice. B, it's so much more merciful, the, the kind of blessings that he extends. And C, the rewards are so much greater for obedience that Christ has promised. In chapter 4, Paul continues this idea by talking about the Sabbath day and today. Now, this is, this is really interesting because, remember, we're having a, a constant, he's constantly adding on to this two-sided uh, analogy, this allegory, uh, almost like a dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New. And now it's the Sabbath day and today. And Paul says, look, 
God created the world and rested on the Sabbath day. We also, all of us, we have a Sabbath day when we will eventually rest. He equates God's rest and he equates the Sabbath day with the reward for righteousness that all of us will eventually receive for eternity. And I think that's a fascinating idea that would be worthy of its entire own lesson. I wish we could spend more time on it, but think about that. First of all, the Sabbath day is our reward. And that's quite fascinating. Well, but we're just going to leave it there. And then he says, now God has created another day. In addition to the Sabbath day, he has created another day called today. And this is an explicit reference to the, uh, the 95th Psalm, among others. So Paul says, today, if you'll hear his voice, then don't harden your hearts. And Today is the day, in other words, in which we make our decisions, and the Sabbath day is the day in which we receive our reward for those decisions. God has finished his work, and he has received his reward, his Sabbath day, and all of us are looking forward to this Sabbath day. Now, the Jews of old, they entered into the promised land, but they didn't receive their rest in the promised land because they didn't follow all of the commandments of the prophets. However, we, all of us, have access now through Jesus to a better kind of a Sabbath day. Now, there are a lot of profoundly modern ideas we can take out of this. You know, there there are metaphysical ideas that people are only now beginning to fully understand, which is, does God live inside or outside of time? Paul is hinting at all of this stuff. He's saying God lives outside of time, and we have today, but God doesn't have today. He only has a perpetual Sabbath day. He's already lived through today. We only have two days. We have today... And we have the Sabbath day. And that is the perpetual contrast of our eternal lives. And that is the flaw in our perception. That is the lack of perspective that we all have, that we suffer from in our current state. Isn't that fascinating that Paul was aware of all of these ideas thousands of years ago? And this is the best way that he could describe it, but it's actually not that bad of a way if we recognize what he's doing. In chapter 5, Paul talks again about high priests. He, gets, he dials down. So he's already mentioned that Jesus is a high priest on a couple of different occasions. But now he's, start, he's starting to talk specifically about what it means to be a high priest. In verse 4, Paul, Paul says, No one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So how was Aaron called? Aaron was called first by being chosen. God chose the lineage of Aaron. And secondly, by laying on of hands, which is described in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. And third, by anointing. So interestingly, there now here is a comparison between a normal high priest or a, what you would call an Aaronic high priest and Jesus Christ as a high priest. But in other ways, he's drawing a, a contrast. So uh, the priests are flawed. The Aaronic high priests are flawed men. When they make a sacrifice, they're sacrificing for themselves as well. But Jesus is a faithful high priest, meaning when he makes a sacrifice, it's only for others. It's not necessary for any sacrifice to be made on behalf of Jesus because he's perfect. And he's perfect in the way that we've described, which is telos. He has a teleos. So he has a telos. He has a purpose, which he has accomplished. And a, a you know, just as I made an analogy before about what a character is, right? An, an, the image or the imprint of God, the word. Uh, we use that little cartoon analogy. Here's an analogy to understand a telos. Uh, if, you, if you are thinking of an old-timey pirate telescope, 
you have that telescope, you're a pirate and you're on a ship and you have that telescope in your pocket, it has not yet reached its telos, but as soon as you take it out of your pocket and you have something you need to see on the horizon and you extend that telescope to its full length and then you look through it, it is now not only capable of, but actually involved in the process of accomplishing its purpose. And now that telescope is perfect. And so that is a perfect way, I think that's a very good way of describing the, the perfection of Jesus Christ as intended by Paul, which is Jesus has accomplished his purpose as a high priest, which is to walk back into the presence of God carrying the suffering that he, that he performed on our behalf, carrying the blood of the Lamb. Now, it's interesting because elsewhere, Jesus has made a parallel, or I'm sorry, Paul has made a parallel between Jesus and the temple, that Jesus is the overlapping between heavenly space and earthly space, or in other words, between God and man, just as the temple is an overlap between heavenly space and earthly space. So Jesus is the temple, but here Paul is also saying Jesus is the high priest, and elsewhere we read that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so the as we start to take all of these different writings about the temple and about Jesus and put them together, we realize that the it is so overloaded, the, the temple is so overloaded with imagery of Jesus that Jesus represents everything in the temple and everything about it points to him. He is the lamb. He is the altar. He is the high priest. He is the temple itself. He is the holy of holies, and he is God at the end of the road. So, if that seems a little bit much for you to take on, uh, recognize that Paul is aware of this, and he's trying to to make it as easy as possible to understand by not by not bringing it all in at once. But I think it's worth all of us thinking about the fact that there is literally no part of a temple experience, either in the Old Testament or in modern times, that does not point to Jesus Christ for its ultimate meaning. I think no discussion of Hebrews chapter 5 would be complete without reading verse 8, and it, that is, though he were a son, I, I find myself uh, quite often referring to this scripture and using it in one discussion or, uh, or another. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And this lets us know that Jesus did not start out knowing everything. It's one of the most comforting scriptures in all of our canon, which uh, for the reason, in my opinion, for the reason that we know that Jesus did not spring forth out of Mary's womb on day one, having all of the answers. Even Jesus had to suffer, and suffering is what led to learning, and learning is what led to growth. And so we can take comfort from that, that in our lives, when things are difficult, we can realize, oh, this is not, I didn't screw up to be in a place where I'm having a tough time. Even Jesus himself had to learn, and he didn't learn by having God just download electronic style all of the knowledge that he needed for eternity into his head. He learned by the things that he suffered. So suffering, uh, you know, one of the illusions that Satan would put into our head is that suffering equals sin, that suffering equals failure. And this is one of the most, this scripture is one of the most powerful debunkings of that idea, that suffering does not equal failure. Suffering actually equals growth, and failure equals growth. And, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't say failure in the sense of failure to choose to follow God, but failure in the sense that uh, we don't have 
the circumstances in our life the way we would like them right now. And that actually, in, in Christ's life, he experienced that quite a bit, and that equaled growth for him. That equaled learning for him. And the next verse is, uh, once made perfect, he, be, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In other words, his purpose was to become our source of salvation. It doesn't mean that Jesus had to be made perfect without sin. He was always perfect in that way. But once he was perfected, once his telescope was fully extended and we looked through him to the horizon, then we could see God and actually reach God. The way that Jesus did this was to be designated a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to talk a ton about Melchizedek. Um, and the reason is because this, this lesson happened to be uh, divided right at the end of chapter 6. And I believe it will be better for us to discuss it next week because more the, the actual meat of that idea is contained in chapters 7 through the end of the book of Hebrews. So we're, we're just going to refer to it a little bit. But Melchizedek is this enigmatic figure from the book of Genesis where he appears only one time. And, and Abraham, he's obviously superior to Abraham in some way because Abraham comes to him and gives him tithes and gives him respect that would only be due to somebody in a much greater station. And uh, in other words, he's the patriarch of some sort, uh, in some way, he's above Abraham. Jewish scholars and modern revelation identify Melchizedek as Shem, the son of Noah. Uh, in fact, Melchizedek itself is not a name, but it's a title. Melek or Melki means the king, and Tzedek, we've discussed in our Old Testament learnings, means righteousness uh, or right relations between people and God, right relationships. So, Melchizedek actually is a title meaning the king of righteousness. And Melchizedek is also called a prince of peace. And that's a title that is shared with Jesus Christ. So there, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's a leader of many people. And he had a priesthood. And Paul is the first person to describe priesthood as being this power. I shouldn't say the first person, but he is the first person in the New Testament to actually talk about priesthood being a quality or an authority conferred from outside rather than a group of men that is simply chosen by lineage. And the, the passage, the salient passage in Exodus is, God calls upon Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But the way this is translated in uh, the later epistle of Peter that we'll get to is a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So that idea did not originate with Paul, but it, it is more clearly stated by Paul and more clearly defined by Paul, and it's expanded upon because now we have two priesthoods. We have the priesthood that uh, was enjoyed by the, the tribe of Levi that was confined to the descendants of Aaron, and then we also have this greater priesthood that pre-existed the entire tribes of Israel at all because we know that it was spoken of to a man that knew Abraham, that was greater than Abraham, that was older than Abraham. And Paul is going to go through the reasons why Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And Christ is after the order of Melchizedek, and we'll describe what that means to be after the order of Melchizedek. Now in chapter 6, 
Paul says, first of all, Paul at the end of chapter 5 starts to talk about meat versus milk, and you've probably heard this, uh, this analogy many times or this metaphor used to describe gospel learning. Uh, you shouldn't have meat before the milk. And that's a reference to the diet of a child, right? Babies, they come out of their mother's womb and they are fed on milk. And as they grow older, they're able to handle meat. And so Paul uses this as an analogy to gospel lessons. He says, we first start out with milk. And the, it's interesting because the examples that he gives of milk are, and, and then we move into chapter 6, he continues to talk about meat versus milk. The examples of milk are faith, repentance, baptism, laying on of hands. As we know from the fourth article of faith, these are the first uh, ordinances and principles of the gospel. And then uh, he adds two more to it, resurrection and judgment. So those six things are the milk. And once we have our foundation firmly laid of these six principles, we don't need to continually lay that foundation over and over again. We should proceed. Paul encourages us to proceed to the meat of the gospel. And what is that meat? What is the great? What are the greater lessons that we shouldn't shy away from learning to exposing ourselves to? And uh, there is no one answer, but one of one. But one of the answers is this: this lesson of condescension, of contrast between uh, Old and New Testaments that Paul is using his entire book of Hebrews to describe. Right? These are the kinds of lessons that we need to be ready to hear and understand and internalize in order to move from simply being uh, immature lessons or infants in the gospel to having a mature and adult diet, a grown-up diet of gospel principles. Now, uh, I'm sort of, I realize I'm sort of preaching to the choir because if you have chosen to listen to this podcast and seek it out, it's because you're the kind of person who delights in uh, a deeper understanding of what may or may not be going on behind the, behind the scenes, what the in, original intent is in the writing of Scripture, and what the original understanding was of those who are reading it. I'm not claiming that I get these things perfect, but what I'm claiming is we all of us have the desire to know those things, and that is our purpose as we study them together. And I guess my point is, um, well done us, because we, we, you know, this is sort of Paul patting us on the back and saying, you're on the right track. Uh, this is really important. What you're doing in studying the scriptures more deeply is actually uh, crucial to your eternal development. There will, there, of course, there's a desperate and essential need for understanding the basics of the gospel. It's your foundation, but a foundation is not a building. Now, incidentally, uh, we all of us listening and speaking, did not come up with this idea. Uh, the prophet has actually established the Come, Follow Me at curriculum and the Come, Follow Me program for precisely this reason. So uh, the entire church is going through this process of... Um, we. There have been plenty of people, don't get me wrong, who have been enjoying the meat of the gospel all along, but to move more people and to put more of a priority on understanding that uh, learning in the gospel is something that we should constantly be maturing in and striving for greater heights in. The end of chapter 6, Paul talks about Abraham and begins to talk about Abraham and Melchizedek. We're going we're gonna to cut off when, and almost pretend that the cutoff for the lesson is uh, a little bit before the end of chapter 6. So I'm going to take a couple ideas from the end of chapter 6 and we'll end our lesson there. And then we'll cover the end of that and the rest of the book of Hebrews next week. And I'm really looking forward to it. I actually uh, took a little longer to get out with the 
to come out with the lesson this week because I, I thought before I looked at the lesson plan, I thought the entire book of Hebrews was what I was covering and I just was so intimidated by the prospect of covering it in one hour. So I'm very glad and the good news is I'm uh, mostly prepared for the second part. And uh, so the point that I'll make, I'll just make a couple of points from the end. One point is this beautiful analogy that we're all ground, right? Here we are in verse in chapter 6. We're all fertile ground. And in verse 8, we'll, we'll start in verse 7. Land that is prepared for growing and then receives uh, abundant rain from God is going to grow something. And we need to make sure that what we're growing is the kind of fruit that the farmer intended so that we can, we can yield a crop and receive blessings. But if we don't do that, we can't just stay neutral. We're going to grow thorns and thistles and weeds, and we're going to be useless ground. So the, the idea is that once you've received the gospel, it's hard. If you receive the gospel, prosper in it for a while, and then reject it, it's hard to come back. And I think probably all of us, most of us at least, have experienced this, where we've uh, had a closeness with God, and then when we reject that, it's actually more difficult to come back, because probably because we feel the shame of having made that choice. When we, we may be living a sinful life, but when we first encounter God, we're able to re- reject all of that and be forgiven for it and probably let our shame pass quickly. But then when we, when we sin in knowledge of the truth, then the, the penalties are greater and the, the, I think the shame, uh, not, not that God would mandate, mandate us to feel shame. I think he wants to forgive us always, no matter how much light we sinned against. But, but Satan puts this lie in our heads, you've sinned against more light. And because of that, it's more difficult to come back. And Paul makes that point here. It's a very well-taken point. The more we learn, the more we have to try to create a relationship with Christ every day because he's going to protect us from growing thistles and weeds rather than growing the crop, the the fruit that God always intended us to grow. The fruit, by the way, is not necessarily converts in the gospel. The fruit is good works. The fruit is happiness and joy that the gospel brings. The fruit is all of the results of living the gospel. One final point I'll make in verse 18 and 19. He talks about the fact that God has made promises to us to be his heirs. And then in verse 18, Paul says, this is chapter 6 of Hebrews, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And uh, I'm not reading from the, this is again the New International Version. So, uh, to me, I hear echoes in this of Ether 12, verse 4. And if you remember that verse, it says, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but those who believe in God may hope for a better world, which hope cometh from faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men. So when we believe in God, we have this anchor to our souls. And now let me read this verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Um, And then he goes back into his temple metaphor. It enters, now by it he means the hope. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, or in other words, the holy of holies behind the veil, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. So uh, please read Ether 12, verse 4, which is one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture, because it talks about how we are made steadfast. We, 
always abounding in good works, works being led to glorify God by our hope in a, in a greater world. And that, so all of this stuff is not just abstract. We're not just discussing the fact that Jesus is a greater high priest so that we can have an intellectual understanding of how the gospel works and why there was a tabernacle in ancient Israel. It's because understanding that gives us hope. And as uh, Paul says, we who have fled, in other words, fled our sinful natures, fled the great and spacious building, as Anne-Marie asked, fled the... Uh, the world and the the temptations of Satan, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged and have this hope become an anchor to our souls. The hope will actually change our behavior as we choose to believe, as we choose to let Jesus Christ enter into our hearts, change our hearts, and lead us to greater works and greater joy in the gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.